This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is bees. So let's buzz right in with fact number one. Japanese honeybees kill giant hornets by cooking them alive. Giant hornets love eating Japanese honeybees, and they're pretty good at it. They're twice the size of their prey, and unlike most hornets, they team up to do their killing like a little giant hornet gang. When one of their scouts finds a bee colony, which is often hid inside a tree trunk, It marks the entrance with a pheromone, and then flies back to fetch the other guys. At that point, it's usually game over for the honeybees. Giant hornets are also called murder hornets, and for pretty good reason. When an attack begins, the hornets go on a frenzied spree. They are horrifyingly efficient at murder. And their favourite method of murder is to decapitate the bees. Researchers observing one attack found that each hornet had a kill rate of four bees a minute. That's nearly as fast as Legolas piercing orcs at Helm's Deep. Once they've chewed off the head, abdomen and legs with their powerful mandibles, they carry some of the protein-rich bee foraxes back to their nest. But the main delicacy is to larvae and pupae. They'll spend weeks after wiping out the adults, harvesting the young. The bee's only hope for survival is to stop that first scout who originally discovered them from reporting back home to his angry, pissed-off hornet mates. Luckily for the bees, they do have a little trick up their sleeves. You see, Japanese honeybees can survive at 50 degrees Celsius for up to a minute. But giant hornets die if their temperature exceeds 47 degrees Celsius. Wimps. This gives the bees a unique advantage. Their strange but highly effective defense mechanism reads like a recipe for microwaving arancini. Take one giant hornet, coat it in Japanese honeybees, set it to vibrate, and bake for one minute at exactly 49 degrees Celsius. Or to put it in bee terms, 
entice the hornet scout inside, engulf it in a bee ball, and vibrate intensely. By the way, a bee ball is literally a ball of bees surrounding a single hornet. Pretty terrifying, right? Of course, it takes a lot longer for the bee ball to reach optimum hornet cooking temperature than it would if you just put it in a microwave. But by vibrating for half an hour or so, the bee ball can heat the center of the ball to 49 degrees Celsius, one degree below their own roasting point, but two degrees above the hornets. You know, just to make sure. The hornet scout dies, the bee's nest remains a secret, and hornet souffle is on the menu. Unlike their Japanese counterparts, European honeybees are unable to bake hornets, but they do use a similar bee ball technique to kill them still. Upon observing these European honeybees killing hornets with bee balls, scientists assumed it was death by cooking, but when they measured the temperature at the center of a Cypriot bee ball, they realized it just wasn't high enough at only 44 degrees Celsius. That wouldn't kill the hornet. Plus the victim in this case, a Cypriot hornet, can survive to 50 degrees Celsius. Instead, the Cypriot honeybees used a bee ball to suffocate the hornet to death. <laughs> depriving it of oxygen for up to an hour. Is it just me, or are wasps suddenly seeming a lot friendlier compared to honeybees? They're bloody psychopathic. Now, of course, if the scouts couldn't find the entrance to the honeybee nest in the first place, then the bees wouldn't have to cook or suffocate them at all. So, ingenious Asian honeybees have found a defense mechanism to use against hornets that doesn't involve spending an hour or so doing the equivalent of a mass TikTok twerk. They dab spots of animal dung around the hive entrance, which is about as much of a turn-off for hornets as it would be if someone in real life smeared their door with poo. And for the hornets, it's even worse, as they like to chew away at the entrance before they invade, to make it easier for their mass attack. And a bee doorway covered in chicken shit is really off-putting to the hornets. This fecal spotting is particularly noteworthy, as it's the first known example of a use of tools by honeybees. They'll be inventing the damn wheel next! Next up, Moments from History. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. This week, the time a park ranger was hit by lightning whilst driving his car. The lightning bolt shot through his hat, hit his head, set his hair on fire, knocked him 10 feet from his car, passed through both his legs, and worst of all, blew his shoes off. Well, that sounds interesting, but it's not particularly remarkable, you might say. But this is only half the story, or a seventh of the story, or even a ninth. Because, you see, Roy Sullivan holds the record as the person struck by lightning the most and survived. 
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. The Guinness Book of World Records lists seven verified times that he's been struck by lightning. The odds of being hit by lightning seven times are less than one in an octillion. An octillion has 28 zeros after the one. That's a lot. That's even lower odds than winning the lottery and being hit by a car and dying in the same week. Although if you ask Roy himself, who I think should just be called Rod at this point, he will claim he's actually been hit nine times in total, which puts the odds of that happening at a staggering one in, well, it's just too much for the human brain to compute. Talking of brains, if lightning enters your skull, it can literally cook it. Around 90% of lightning victims actually survive, but many are left with serious injuries. It can cause internal burns, burst blood vessels, scarring, paralysis, and cardiac arrest. People who've been struck by lightning report loss of concentration, anxiety, digestive problems, short-term memory loss, and PTSD. But most interestingly, some people have even gained strange superpowers Nina Lazzaroni, a dental technician from Ohio who was struck by lightning in 1995, claims she could cause lights to flicker off and on again as she walked by them. I didn't say they were particularly good superpowers. To avoid being struck by lightning, experts suggest you should stay away from trees, water, beaches, hilltops, and metal poles which is just about everywhere outside. So don't go outside, it's very dangerous. If you are stuck somewhere outside and completely exposed whilst there's a lightning storm, you should take off any metal items and lie down flat. People who knew Roy Sullivan also added him to the list of things to stay away from. Seriously, at the first hint of thunder, his friends and acquaintances would all scarper. As Roy himself put it, I was walking with the chief ranger one day when lightning struck way off in the distance. The chief said, I'll see you later. Rod, sorry, Roy, started his career as a lightning conductor and ranger in Shenandoah National Park in 1940, and he had his first encounter with Thor's electrostatic plasma in 1942 whilst working at a hilltop fire tower. The lightning burnt a half-inch scar into his right leg, demolished a nail on his big toe, and ripped a hole in his boot sole. At the time, the fire tower didn't have a lightning rod. It did have a lightning roy, though. Lightning rods were invented by Benjamin Franklin in 1752, so there's really no excuse for that. 
As we all know, Franklin flew a kite in a thunderstorm to prove that the lightning was an electrical phenomenon and would be attracted to the kite string. Sadly for Franklin, he failed to patent his invention and so never made a penny from it. But by 1870, there were some 10,000 lightning rod salesmen in the US alone. Yes, once you could actually be a lightning rod salesman. I mean, it beats being a shower curtain salesman, doesn't it? Back to Rod, I mean, Roy Sullivan. After a 27-year hiatus from being struck by lightning, as you do, the lightning strike suddenly came back thick and fast. In 1969, he lost his eyebrows and most of his hair. His wristwatch got fried and he was knocked out. Lightning strike number three in 1970 bounced off a power transformer, searing his left shoulder and sending him flying. Lightning strike four in 1972 set his hair alight. Then the Guinness World Record people got wind of the lightning man and their first entry for him listed four lightning strikes which they had to keep updating the more he got hit. Strike five in 1973 hit him in his car, burning his hair and sending him flying once again. Apparently, he kept a bucket of water in his car to douse his hair when he was struck by lightning. Given that water attracts lightning, maybe that wasn't such a smart idea. He really wasn't helping himself. In 1976, his hair caught fire again, post-lightning strike. Roy said he suffered one other strike while still at work. He retired in 1976 and moved to a town called Dooms. Presumably just for the shits and giggles. He fitted his trailer house with heavy gauge copper rods. And rods were also fixed to six of the tallest nearby trees, each one sunk seven feet into the ground. But it didn't help him. In 1977, he was struck again whilst fishing. And then he claimed one final lightning strike post-retirement, which, if true, would have brought the total to nine. Some people think Roy was exaggerating. It's hard to believe lightning could strike one person that many times. But the injuries visible from his strikes were verified by his family doctor. But he certainly dined out on the story. He was interviewed by David Frost for the BBC and appeared on a quiz show. In 1980, he featured on the TV show, That's Incredible. He was even immortalised in a song by a band named I Hate Myself. The song is called Roy Sullivan by Lightning Loved. On the 28th of September, 1983, he died in his bed from a single self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. So despite many brushes with death, it wasn't lightning that finally got Sullivan. But to his friends and family, it still came as quite a shock. Now we'll take a quick break and soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. A colony of bees reaches a decision in a very similar way to one human brain. 
Now, you may not realise it, but when you're faced with a really difficult decision to make, such as which of the thousands of films, documentaries or bingeable TV series should you watch as you scroll through the options whilst lying on the sofa eating two-day-old pizza, your brain works in a very similar way to a hive of bees. Groups of neurons in a human brain represent different choices, and they interact with each other in this group until one choice eventually becomes dominant. That group then stimulates neighbouring neurons that support the same choice, while suppressing ones that oppose it. A bit like cancel culture. From this busy hum of neural activity, a dominant choice emerges, and the human brain decides what to do. Unless you're like me, and you're incapable of actually deciding and just spend the whole evening scrolling through your choices, and don't actually watch anything at all. But that very same process, like literally the very same process, happens in a colony of honeybees. When it comes to decision making, a colony of bees acts as a hive mind. Tens of thousands of individual worker bees behave like a single human nervous system with each bee taking the place of a neuron. When the bees face a choice, such as where the next ideal home should be, scout bees check out the options and then present the alternatives by each doing a waggle dance for the queen and the rest of the hive. The bees dance is incredibly intricate and contains many subtle instructions that tell other bees the intended location of the new hive. The bee will run forwards and backwards. And the further it runs before going backwards again indicates the distance of the new hive's location. The direction the bee dances towards is indicative of the direction it's trying to point out, but in a rather convoluted way that reminds us bees are probably smarter than us and might take over the world one day. If they dance facing straight upwards, it indicates the location is in the current direction of the sun, and any deviation to this indicates it's that many degrees away from the sun. So if it dances 60 degrees to the left, the new hive's location is 60 degrees to the left of the sun. It's all rather complicated. Like I said, bees are pretty smart. And if a circular pattern is present in the dance, it indicates the new location is somewhere very close to the existing hive. As for the actual waggling part of the waggle dance, it's thought that the amount of waggling is relative to the quality of the new location. If the new location has lots of nectar sources nearby, then the bee will also dance for longer and more vigorously. Then, each bee opts for a choice, and they support or veto each other until they reach a unanimous consensus. By pooling all their collective information, the hive mind makes exponentially smarter decisions than any single bee. We know this due to the heroic efforts of the researchers who studied them. They had the mammoth task of tagging 4,000 bees that make up a colony. And this wasn't just as simple as shooting them all with a little tiny tagging gun. They had to catch each individual bee, feed it, glue a tiny antenna to its thorax, scan it, 
and then release it again. And then they repeated that process 3,999 more times. Once released, a transmitter picked up a unique signal from each bee, so they could track its movement using something called harmonic radar technology. The researchers then observed the bees as they took 16 hours to decide exactly where to set up their new home. You have to give it to the bees and their democracy, that's about a tenth of the time it takes our parliament to decide whether to end lockdown on Monday or Tuesday afternoon. The researchers then wanted to check whether the bees were actually being discerning in their choice of hive site, or they were just choosing at random. So they first offered them two five-star sites, both a similar distance from the swarm, and secondly, offered them a selection of five medium-style sites to choose from. In the first case, the swarm went for fabulous site number one after only 15 bees had checked it out. Not bothering to wait for the arguments in favour of the other potential bee site. Maybe it had a 4.5 on Bee Advisor. But when they were given a choice of five good but not so great sites, it took them far longer to decide. That's why it's always difficult to choose between five mediocre films on Netflix. Whereas if there's two films with a particular buzz around them, it makes the choice pretty easy. Sorry. Fact number three. In 1990, a bee learnt to clone herself. Imagine if your worst co-worker could clone themselves. To be fair, I'm absolutely convinced there's a machine out there that replicates receptionists named Barbara. But there's a whole subspecies of bee, the South African Cape honeybee, that has been found to consist of millions of clones of a single worker bee that was buzzing around back in 1990. This came as quite a shock to entomologists. It's long been known that some queen bees can reproduce asexually, but this is usually due to a lack of mates and results in genetically different offspring. The queen bee achieves this by remixing her chromosomes with her parents' chromosomes. This creates larvae that are something of akin to a cross between daughter and sister bees. Coincidentally, we humans also do something quite similar if we're born in West Yorkshire. This is fine for a generation or two, the bees I mean. But long term, bees need an injection of new drone chromosomes to stop their offspring from developing the kinds of inbred anomalies that plagued European royalty for centuries, such as receding chins, blood disorders, and insanity. But what's not supposed to happen is worker bees creating perfect, healthy copies of themselves ad infinitum. But that's exactly what this particular clone of bees does. They're all genetically identical to the original 1990s bee. They've become an immortal stormtrooper bee army for three decades and counting. Now, they may be a miracle of science, but they're also incredibly dysfunctional. 
Laying eggs is the job of the queen bee. In return, she gets to laze around all day being fed royal jelly. The clones are supposed to be worker bees. Now they look like worker bees, but they're all as idle as the queen bee. And this particular subspecies of bee is a parasite. The queen will tend towards cuckoo-like behavior. She invades foreign colonies, lays eggs, and persuades the host workers to feed her larvae. She's even able to secrete queen bee pheromones, hoodwinking the host bees into thinking she's their queen. But the clone army has taken this parasitic behavior to a whole other level. As each clone can create exact copies of itself, they no longer need a queen at all. In a scenario that reads like a classic sci-fi trope, they survive solely by taking over other hives of African lowland honeybees and slowly destroying them. Scientists estimate 10% of lowland bees are being wiped out each year as the colonies are infiltrated by the clones. The clones refuse to do any work, eat all the food, and strut around like a bunch of freeloading corporate event crashers. Event crashes that can replicate themselves at will. That's terrifying. The clone larvae accelerates this hive takeover by sending signals to their unwitting hosts to feed them as much as possible. This means the larvae grow huge, which in turn increases their reproductive power. As the hive fills with more and more clone bees, the work grinds to a halt, and all the bees, including the clones, end up starving to death. The end of the clone bees, and the end of the clone war, you might think. But like an airborne pandemic virus, <coughs> mentioning no names, by this point some of the clone bees have already buzzed off to other hives, and have started the whole process again. It's not all bad news though, studying the clone bees has got entomologists quite excited. It has all kinds of implications for gene research. If they can work out how to control the switch that lets insects reproduce asexually, it could have really important ramifications for agriculture, biotechnology, and many other fields of research. Potentially allowing them to stop, say, parasitic ants from reproducing. And maybe, one day, activate a clone switch in other species. Who knows? Dolly the sheep could just be the beginning. By 2030, the streets could be overtaken by a clone army of otters. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Random Interesting Facts. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review it. And subscribe so you never miss another episode. Also, if you have a random interesting fact that you're just dying to share with me, then tweet it at me using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's R-I-F Podcast. Each week I'll choose my favourite fan-submitted fact and read it out at the end of the episode. Thank you.